This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. What do you see happening to the young attendings in your country um, who now have to gain more ground after graduating, whereas perhaps in the past they could have had a lot of those formative experiences still as residents? Yeah, I mean, you're, 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 you're pointing your fingers into the wound. I mean, um, <laughs> the problem really is that um, I would say that you have less, less experience when you are um, when you have graduated or if, when you are a younger attending. I mean, it's not as dramatic that you cannot get your things done within the six years. So we have a six-year training in, in Germany. And um, admittedly, this is the minimum number of years. And as you have written in your article, uh, it was very similar with the last generation in Germany that um, you, went to, you went to graduate when your chairman thought that you were ready to graduate, which could take mm. 10 years or 12 years. But my generation um, tr tried to copy the U.S. system with a, with a curriculum, with a, um, uh, key topics to learn, with a clear flow, how to train and teach people so that the residents are finished after the, uh, within the minimum years. So every resident, at least in our center, in our training program, will have their surgeries and their exposure within the six years. But I mean, this is really what, what is expected from you. But this, this extra surgeries that give you the routine, how you move in the OR, how you feel comfortable. And at the same time, we see that the diversity of the different surgical approaches is, is rather increasing than decreasing. I mean, we see all these specialties, the new specialties arising. We see new demands in spine, for example. I mean, it was, it was enough to decompress a spine and maybe do an ACDF uh, 15 years ago. Now you're expected to do a single level or two level um, fusion for a degen disease or be able to deal with a metastatic spine disease and, and, and stabilize that or instrument that kind of patient. So the, the, the expectations are increasing while the expo exposure is, 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 going, um, is, is, is decreasing. And the result is that we have attendings in, in, in a large scale that had less exposure and are less experienced and um, have, to, uh, have to learn and get experience during their fellowship or during their young attending times um, and uh, but it's overall we still have very talented young ones that get the trick in six years with that exposure but uh, the average will not have the exposure and I think we should also discuss how important um, uh, the learning curve has become because with with lower exposure learning curve I mean it's clear that you will not be able to do the 10,000 hours of training that you need, according to the literature. And if you are failing to have 10,000 hours, it comes to, to the individual learning curve. How fast can residents learn in a reduced time? Right. And I, I think that these questions of the work hour restrictions per week during your residency, it, it dovetails and it's really inextricable from the question of the overall residency duration. And I, I think in the States, we're seeing more people going into fellowships after residency now than uh, has been seen in the past. And that could be, I, I can't prove it, obviously, but that could be a function of um, the fact that 
it, it's mandated now that I'll, I'll say it glibly, you kind of take it easy, so to speak, during your residency, rather than diving in head first and just immersing yourself in learning how to be a neurosurgeon. And so you could finish in six years, which it used to be in the United States. Now you work less during each year, so it takes seven. And then you work even less during those seven years, so maybe you do a fellowship after that. And there's all sorts of reasons that people do fellowships, but I, I think it's reasonable to think that some proportion of the increased number of people doing fellowships may be caused by the restriction on the amount of work you can do during your core residency years. Um, but before we fully um, address the question of residency duration, I, I do want to uh, pull on a, a thread that you briefly mentioned, which is operating post-call. Um, I'll say plainly, I operated post-call a lot as a junior resident. Um, my PGY2 year, which is the heaviest year of call in most programs in the States, certainly at mine, staying post-call to operate during that year was really when I learned how to do a craniotomy, like in, in my bones, learned how to do it. And I did so freely by my own choice. I was never forced to. I was never even asked to. I just did because I wanted to. And that's an experience I would never give up because as a junior resident, that's truly protected free time where nothing can draw you away. You don't have to see a consult. No one can page you because you're truly free and off duty. So you can really focus on doing the operation. And I wouldn't trade that experience for the world. I, you know, I, I laid a bedrock of surgical skills. What is your outlook on staying post-call to operate both you know, speaking for yourself, and then of of course, in your official capacity, heading your program. I think what you're saying is absolutely true. Um, staying post call for doing surgeries um, is a very good time to learn and to get more exposure. Um, but especially if you have not slept enough, it's simply not possible anymore to stay. And mm. even if you, as a department, would agree that it's possible. There are other um, disciplines or other people in the OR who might think that this is not appropriate and uh, you would get a feedback from them. This is very true. I, I will, I'll say plainly, I never stayed or did anything where I felt unsafe. And, um, you know, again, I was never asked to or forced to. So I'm speaking purely for myself, not my department. But I do think it's a it's a great opportunity that we frequently miss out on now. Um, I think there was a there was a recent study in JAMA Surgery where they actually looked at um, fatigue among surgeons, and it was a meta analysis because this this is such a, a thorny question. But they actually looked at the effect of fatigue on technical ability and decision making in surgical residents, and they 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 compiled simulated studies and then what data there were on actual real life cases where people were fatigued by whatever metric each study had. And in the simulated studies, they found that 50% of studies showed some loss of technical ability with fatigue. And then in real life surgeries, they found that it was only 30% showed some loss of technical ability or decision making uh, in, in residents who were quote unquote fatigued. Again, the definition of fatigue, the definition of technical ability was all specific to each study in this meta-analysis. So there's so many shades of gray and, and fuzziness in the data. But I think that's remarkable findings that, that even, and if you read the paper, I think uh, the, some of the authors were motivated to find 
ineffective fatigue and, and show that it decreased technical ability. But even so, in simulations, only half of the studies and then even fewer in real life situations where you could obviously say that the operator is motivated, um, perhaps more sharply focused because it's a real case in a real patient that you have to really take seriously. I think that's encouraging to find that, that even if you go out and look for it, in only a third of the cases, there's some decline in technical ability. Um, but I mean, in, in your setting now, you're no longer a resident, you're director of your service. Um, when you're on call, how frequently are you called in to do a surgery in the middle of the night where you may feel fatigued, but you still have to perform? That's a real part of our job, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, number one, I know the paper and I was disappointed about the results because I also felt, as you said, that there was a certain bias to really show that people are fatigued. And, right. uh, and I know as a resident, you have, you have calls where you get to sleep like two or three or even five hours because the night has been um, quiet. And I think that's a completely different ball game than right. somebody who is doing trauma cases the whole night and is exhausted the next morning. And at the same time, if you do the case together, I mean, you usually don't do an, uh, an aneurysm or an acoustic yourself, but you may be opening or learning. So I think there are different shades, as you said. So I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't use that paper really to, uh, to argue too much against our wish to find uh, spots where to operate. Um, then I have the luxury as a chairman that I'm not on call. Uh, I'm the on-call on-call, so I get called if um, yeah. the attendings have problems. Um, but for my attendi attendings, I can say, so we are ser uh, we are serving three hospitals, and it really depends on the campus and which, which hospital we are talking about. So there's one that is maybe the headquarter um, where we could work the whole night, but it or really to, to also... Um, to also... Uh, help the nurses and um, not stress out the, the other disciplines, we agreed on that we do really only emergency cases after 11 p.m. And that has brought in some quiet nights because uh, um, we used to do also urgent things that might have been postponed for the next day. Uh, but that's not done anymore. So I would say that they are called in every second night. Uh, or every third night after uh, midnight. I see. You know, the, the last thing I will say about that paper, because it, it, it genuinely made me chuckle a little bit, it's, it was a perfect case of glass half empty, glass half full, because they found 50% of the studies and simulations showed an effect of fatigue. And they phrased it as, well, in 50% of studies, surgeons performed worse than their fatigue. Whereas you just as easily could say in 50% of studies, surgeons weren't affected by fatigue at all and they were just fine. But the, the phrasing of it was a perfect ha uh, glass half empty perspective. Um, but as we come to a close here, I do want to respect your time, sir. Um, I, I think the, the issue we've been dancing around, but we haven't really addressed head on yet is the duration of residency. And um, as, as you said, I, I recently with my colleagues here at Rush, we did this survey study looking at how the PGY-7 year in North America has been utilized since the mandatory transition to a seven-year duration of residency. Um, and then as part of that, we did a couple of editorials about um, the trends that we saw in it and whether or not residency really needs to be seven years long or 
if we could just focus on a core curriculum of surgical training and then people who want to do a research year can do it. People who want to go do a fellowship can do that. But someone who just wants to be a general community neurosurgeon can maybe finish their general overall core neurosurgical training more quickly and then get out in the community and, and do good, competent, safe, general neurosurgical work. Um, your program with a complement of four per year is six years in duration. And I know that you have strong feelings about not just the duration of a shift and the number of hours per week, but the overall training period for a neurosurgeon. So where, where do you stand? And, you know, as we said, your program is six years. Do you think that's the ideal duration to thread that needle? Or do you foresee that changing in years to come with, uh, you know, further restrictions or adapting to the restrictions you've already faced in the weekly work hours? No, I think our six our, our six years are okay. I mean, uh, this is uh, one year or it's, it's nine months in critical care and uh, uh, three months in PEDS. That's what we are uh, what we are offering. And then you have a five year of uh, core neurosurgical training. And as I said, everybody had the the, the, the surgeries together to to really do the exams after six year or. Um, um, to sign in for the exams after six years. And I wouldn't change that because, I mean, what we have not talked about is academics. And um, right. what I really expect from everybody who's working here that uh, they they have to work in some ways academically. Um, I've been a visiting professor at, in San Francisco with Mitch Berger. I've, I heard about the, the three, three paper per year uh, rule that they have. I tried to, to implement that. That was more or less successful but it just shows that i think in an academic environment we shouldn't only talk about expectations of residents and expectations of attendings when they are training um, the residents but we should also talk about the academic work and um, we i would say that 50 percent of our residents are successful in this academic work in parallel to the clinical work and i'm <laughs> when i'm saying that I admit that you write the paper not within the 42 hours. You do 42 hours of clinical work, and then you do your research or writing the paper or putting together the data um, in the evenings or in the weekends. And I, I think that's fair. At least the, the way our work hour restrictions are written in the States, I believe they do apply to in-house clinical duties. And so having an expectation to work on papers outside of those hours, I think, is very reasonable. When else would you? Um, yeah. But I, I would like to ask you to make this case, and I'll, I'll tell you, I'm uh, phrasing the question kind of as a devil's advocate, but I agree with you completely. I think that neurosurgery is and must remain a field that is inherently academic, um, simply because it, it's still so young as a field and we have very little, I mean, we have evidence for what we do, right? But compared to some other medical specialties, the amount of evidence we have and the quality of the evidence we have, depending on your subdiscipline, is comparatively poor. And so I think that every neurosurgeon should ideally be academically productive, but at least needs to have the training and the intellect and the exposure to our literature to stay abreast of things, to keep informing their practice after residency. So my, my hand is up. I agree. Every neurosurgeon has to have some academic in them. But if someone listening disagrees with that and thinks, come on, I just want to go out and do decompression, some ACDF, some meningioma here and there, 
Why do I need to do all, write all these papers and things? Make, make the case for why neurosurgical training must and can include academic time. I mean, the U.S. Neurosurgical, U.S. neurosurgery is an elite position for exactly this point because you are fostering academic work and everybody is, has to buy in the deal that if they are trained in a big center, they have to work academically. Um, so as a German neurosurgeon that is admiring U.S. neurosurgeons and would love to overtake you, I mean, I'm just glad for your <laughs> suggestion that 60, more than 60% should not work academically and go somewhere else. And since they know it from the beginning, obviously they don't know it from the beginning, they shouldn't do research because that would give us the opportunity to take you over. But obviously this is not, I, I like the competition and this is why I would like to stay, say that you should stay with everybody's doing academics and then you decide. Number two is, when you start your training, you usually don't know whether you're an academic neurosurgeon or whether you are not an academic neurosurgeon. That is something that you learn over the years. And everybody that I interview is telling me that they want to become an academic neurosurgeon. But in the end, and it's the same in the US, many of them end up in the private sector or in the peripheral sector in a non-academic environment. But in order to really learn whether you're an academic neurosurgeon, you have to be exposed to academics and you have to be forced to do to do academics so i wouldn't really i wouldn't really support a system where where some have to do it and others don't have to do it um and number and number three is instead of discussing whether you should cut down on academic work you should discuss how you can optimize the training I think we have so many inefficiencies in our trainings. For example, I remember when I was um, an intern in the US, you had to pre-round at four o'clock in the morning. If that is still something that you do or you, do, you, you round multiple times in the morning, I, th I always thought that's inefficient, for example. And, we, and then you have inefficient work on the OR. Many, a lot of the work that is done by residents is really not, um, is not, is not medical work. It's documentation. It's pulling things together. It's organizing things. Maybe something that can be done by nurses or by administrative or secretaries or whatever. I think we are. I think the I, the, the the goal has to be to be more efficient in our clinical work and not to cut down on um, on academics or to prolong the training. And then another thing that came up came to my mind when I read your paper, you, you said that you are finished with training and you're 36 or 37 and you had a lot of debts that you have to pay. So why isn't it, doesn't it make sense to, uh, to shorten the training so, so surgeons can pay off their debts more earlier and so it becomes a financial issue um, how long you train. And I think my, my answer to this is why don't you just start training earlier? Rethink the, rethink the path that it takes to get to a neurosurgical training because the neurosurgeons in Germany, they, are, they end when they are 32 or 33 max. They, they start training with 24 or 26. So I think that's one difference. And uh, then you should find a way to have lower depths um, at the end of your training and um, find a way to come around that. So I think Common bottom line is you should not cut down on the academic and um, surgical exposure. We have to optimize um, everything that is not non-surgical and 
non-academic around um, the whole workflow that we that we have and that our residents are exposed to. Wow, well said on all points. Um, I, I think a couple things that you mentioned there could easily be uh, an episode of this show in and of themselves, if not uh, an hours-long conversation over drinks. I mean, the amount of clerical and administrative work that our interns do, that that I did as an intern, that have nothing to do with the practice of clinical neurosurgery or even medicine, but are purely clerical tasks that our interns are inundated with is frankly shameful, I think. And, and you're completely correct. That takes almost an entire year of, of training away that you're doing things that are barely tangential to our actual work. Um, and uh, I think any right thinking person, certainly in the, in the United States, where, you know, which is my experience where I'm talking about, medical school in the States is four years. And I think any right thinking person who doesn't have a direct financial stake in the duration of medical school would agree it could be done in three years. Um, and, you know, m much like we open this conversation talking about how every year people start rearing their heads up about work hour restrictions and overnight call and things, every year people talk about shortening medical school, but it's, it's such a behemoth to try and make a change like that in this country. Um, whereas our, you know, our, our counterparts in law school here, it takes only three years to get a degree in law, which is a similar professional degree, but medical school has this unnecessary fourth year that, that really hits people hard. Um, mm. But I do want to respect your time. We, we've been going long and I, I feel like I could talk to you for hours. Um, th this has been a blast. Very quickly before we, we do wrap this up, though, um, obviously, you're the director and chair of your program in Berlin. You visited programs in the United States. I wonder, just as maybe a fun little cap on this conversation, if you can think of one thing from the American neurosurgical training system that you've seen that you could bring back to Germany, what would it be? And then vice versa, what would you export to us from the way you do things in Germany that you think we could benefit from? So two things that I brought to my training is number one, a clear cut curriculum and uh, learning points and learning objectives Every resident knows what's, what's expected and what they have to learn. And in turn, they have a security that they will, they have an organized curriculum. That was something that we didn't have in Germany 10 or 20 years ago. And number two, I think the, the, the concept of physician assistants and research nurses that uh, take care of all these administrative work that you mentioned. But now I'm a little bit disappointed since you have the same program problem i thought that you had solved this problem <laughs> at least in at least in the programs that i visited i always had the idea i always had the impression that uh, you just um, allow the number of residents that is later on really needed so it's very well calculated um, every program has a limited number of residents that are allowed to to be hired depending on the size in germany everybody can Every department can hire as many residents as they wish. Uh, and then I, I had the, uh, the impression that nurse, yeah, residents only go to the OR in the US and don't have to take care of uh, bureaucratic work and administrative work. But um, your point was sobering. So I think um, um, there's still also ways to improve in the US. And what would I bring to, what would I bring to, the, to the US? Um, uh, I think 
what over the years I started to find my way back to a broader training, more generalized neurosurgery. What I what I really always think is a problem that that, that you are super specialized um, because you can afford to have like in big programs 30 or 40 attendings. We have only 14 attendings taking care of 5,000 surgeries. So uh, what we in Germany started to appreciate or revive is um, neurosurgeons that are more active, more in a broad sense. And I think um, this is something that I would like to see residents appreciate more that they that they are trained in a broader sense and not super specialized too early. Very well said. I, I, I will say to perhaps um, undercut some of the sobering feeling that my, my comment gave you that I was an intern five years ago now, and, and since then we have hired a lot of uh, PAs to help with some of the clerical and disposition-related work on our floors. But uh, when, when you say you, you thought we had solved the problem in the United States, I, I think, as you well know, in this life, problems are never solved. They're, they're only temporized, then, and then they change and become new problems. Um, one, one of my bosses, John O'Toole, often says about treating the spine is degenerative spine, at least, that there's no disease here. You're not curing anything. You're fighting time and gravity. And so um, I guess just like uh, cutting work hours, you're kicking the can into junior residency. Every time you try to uh, solve a problem in, in training or I think in medicine writ large, you're really just kicking the can down a few years until you realize uh, what new problem your change has created. Um, but I, I think that uh, this has been a really enjoyable conversation for me. I've learned a lot, and it's really fascinating to see what the training structure in terms of both the rules, but then how it's actually enacted in another country is. And so uh, getting your perspective as the head of your program is really invaluable for that. And then in particular, getting your perspective on the way we do things here, from what you've seen visiting and from afar. Um, and and I, I truly believe that our listeners will enjoy this and get as much out of this as I have. Um, if anyone listening disagrees with anything that we've said today about work hour restrictions, duration of residency, operating post-call, being academically productive, please feel free to write in neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com. Tell me I'm a fool. Tell me why I'm wrong. Um, I'll be happy to address any uh, objections in a future episode or if, or if anyone feels differently and would like to come on and discuss that. But um, Dr. Peter Vicozzi, this has been a, a really instructive conversation for me. I truly appreciate your time. And I, I hope sometime in the future, you'll come back on the show and we can talk more about these issues. So thanks for having me. And my message to the residents is that they should not be frustrated. I think they have great programs in the US. You have still 80 hours to work on and uh, your academic output is great. And the better your academic output is, the brighter is your future. So I think you don't have to complain and you should not be frustrated. And I thank you for putting that into perspective with me together. It was a really blast to be with you and um, best wishes for the future of this podcast here. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. 
It's just a show, everybody. 